the tiger bhutalia says looking at raya once there was a group of women going to the market i pounced on one of the women in the middle and but suddenly another one of them came and groped my testicles i got up and ran leaving my prey behind and since then i have been roaming around with swollen testicles hearing this the tiger durbar says in despair i bow down to the women folk there was once a pregnant woman in labor and she was taken to deliver in a room in the forest fenced with net i looked around carefully and found out that the room had no roof and i jumped at once upon it as i tried with both my hands to pry open into the pry into the room the the woman suddenly woke up alarmed there was a burning wood nearby she got it immediately and shoved it in my mustache Hi, this is Alexa Sand and I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our fellow creatures today. And today we have another two guest episode which we are recording separately but we're going to do the best we can to make sure it sounds organic in the end. And our topic today is what is it Alexa? Grr. Grr, tigers. <laughs> tigers. Tigers again. Again. Now, you, again. <laughs> you don't have to have listened to our previous episode called Tiger Tiger, but if you'd like to do that, um, you will see some of the European medieval and Renaissance ideas about the tiger, which are highly entertaining. So I, I encourage you to listen to it, but you don't need to have done that. So our first expert today is Jane Buckingham, who is a professor of South Asian history at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, also director of the New Zealand South Asia Center. And Professor Buckingham has a long-standing interest in the pre-modern period and also an interest in animal studies. So welcome, Jane. Hi, Ian, and hi, Alexa. Thank you so much for in- inviting me to participate in this conversation. It's so exciting to get a chance to talk about two two things that I really love and hold dear and don't often get a chance to just have a chat about. Um, I'm teaching environmental history of India at the moment and the 300 level focuses on the history of the animal relationships in South Asia, sort of from the Indus Valley through. So it's a, a nice opportunity to talk a bit more about this area of research. Great. Well, we're uh, really thrilled to have you. Yeah. So we ended the 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 previous our previous episode on tigers. We ended by remarking that the tiger would seem very different if we were coming at to it from a pre-modern South Asian perspective. And Alexa, I think you said that the first Mughal emperor took the name Babur, which is supposed to have meant tiger. So I okay. I thought we would ask, I thought we would ask, we'd begin sort of by asking uh, Jane to talk a little bit about uh, about Babur and also, you know, how the Mughals became associated with tigers at, at all. Well, this is a, a very interesting question. The, the, the name tiger and its association with Babur, is see, it's seen as a sort of a nickname or a, an appellation. And it's believed to have come from the local region of Fergana, that this was, was part of the local community gave him that title. And when you you start to look at the sort of the history of peoples who came through northwestern India, particularly through Afghanistan, you find quite a few with this 
this um, title. Uh, Shusha Suri, the Afghan, was known as the Tiger of Delhi, and he's the one who had a sort of interregnum in the early Mughal period. He he defeated Babur's uh, son and ended up ruling Delhi for a period of time. And there are a range of different uh, Shusha, um Nur Jahan's former husband was also known as Tiger Slayer. So it was a term that was often associated with people who were of seen as not necessarily just of royal stature, but of warrior stature and as as leaders. And it wasn't unique to Babur. And he came from Central Asia. He came out of a, a Central Asia Asian tradition. He was a descendant of Genghis Khan and a descendant of Timur. Uh, Timur himself was seen as a as a as a tiger slayer. Um, and there's some ex- wonderful miniature paintings of Timur shooting a tiger, so that not just bows and arrows were used with tigers. It tended to be firearms that were used to destroy them, even during as early as the Mughal period. But the concept of a tiger is, is very much tied to the idea of being a particular kind of ruler. And Babur had other titles that were linked to him. Ghazni, um, somebody who was a, a, a sort of warrior in, the, in, the, in, in, in support of his religion and background, though actually he was relatively secular as a, as a Muslim. So Tiger has a sort of association with warrior values, strength, and also with stories of the particular person killing tigers. And tigers were a major threat in for a lot of communities in north northwest India, um, which is the region that Babur entered India through. So there's you've got the Khyber passes, and and most of the early conquests of India are, are peoples who come in through the Khyber Pass. Babur is pushed out of his ancestral homelands. He loses, he wins Samarkand when he's a young teenager, but he loses it twice more. And in the end, he just goes, well, maybe I'll just see if I can get Timur, my my other ancestors, see if I can get some territories that he used to hold. And that's why he comes into North India and he is able to form alliances with the local uh, princes and kings who don't like the incumbents who are Turco-Afghans and he becomes the next ruler of India. And this, you sort of wonder whether the, the tiger is much more to do with the Turco-Afghan context rather than a Turco-Mongol context. So if a tiger, I wonder about sort of what the valence of the tiger is itself, because you know, if it's if you get points for being a tiger slayer, then presumably tigers are a threat. They're they're bad. But if you if you see the tigers as having a positive valence, then you want to sort of adopt the persona of the tiger or be associated with the tiger. You know that certainly, like in the um, European tradition, lions are very positive, right? So you you're not so much the lion killer as the lion, you know, as the lion hearted, for instance. <laughs> Uh, but is that so? Are they are they opposing tigers or are they being tigers? That's a really interesting question, and I I'm still not entirely sure. I think the answer has to do with locality as much as anything, and 
you're absolutely right. And in, in, in India's history, the, the lion is, is very much associated with kingship. You go back to Ashoka and he has lions on the, uh, as part of his symbolism. And there are various kings and emperors in, in India who have a lion as part of their symbolism. But the tiger has a massive resonance in India's history, and it still does. But the, the tiger, the tiger has an ambivalent role in India's history. And it seems that gender has a, a, a role in this and also regionalism. So the northwest of India, which is the part that's most connected to the Western world, the part where the Greeks came through, Alexander the Great uh, invaded through the Hindu Kush, where uh, the Kushans came through, different groups invade through northwest India or move through northwestern India. In that region, there seems to be more of a sense of the tiger as connected with more of the Afghan and 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 I would say almost the European values. That, so that the tiger is seen as something that is dangerous and threatening, but also an appropriate prey for a king or a ruler. And there's this combination of of showing your status by being able to shoot tigers or to kill a tiger, but also your role as a ruler who protects the local peoples. And tigers were a serious threat to populations who were moving more and more into areas that were their their homelands, the, the, the denser forest areas. And as cultivation develops and extends and settlement extends as 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 India gains power and status as a as a as a rich place, the population improves and agricultural settlement and pastoralists become closer and closer to the habitat of the tiger. And this is still an issue in India today with tigers, but more so with elephants. So you have a, a, a tension there between the the that status of the tiger as something that's a threat to settlement and the opportunity it poses for a ruler to protect the people to show his power as as a marksman and a warrior but there's also another side to this and there are women women who are leaders who also shoot tigers and you see this in uh, not just in Mughal tradition but in Rajput tradition which again is part of that central that that sort of northwestern India tradition so famously Noor Jahan um was was a, a tiger shooter, and um, there's other there are Hindu princesses also who were tiger shooters. So it wasn't only the men who could shoot tigers. But you have this kind of complex situation. But if you go to north, the northeastern areas of India, more the more the Bengal regions, the regions of the uh, Sundarbans, and all those areas, you have a, much more of a sort of female divinity type association with the tiger and the tiger's deeply connected with village goddesses and the power of the village goddess and and in that role the tiger is a protector of the people and a protector of the people of the village and a protector of the people of the forest so you have this complex in india it's always complex and at the same time the tiger might be frightening they might be something that's feared there may be efforts by local villages to capture or to 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 drive off tigers but at the same time, 
the tiger is associated with with village goddesses, with the goddess uh, Duga, Kali. There's even stories that if you if you die, you would come back as a tiger. The soul of the ti- the person can be transferred into the into the body of the tiger. So the tiger also has this other role, and it's very much linked to locality and local cultural um, tradition. There's huge variety in culture and and um, history in throughout India in in local local terms in, as well as time. The other association of tigers is with asceticism, and that's another another side of the story. I want to come back to that, but this mention you made of the tiger's association with a female goddess as a kind of protector that connects to something that is pretty strong in the Western pre-modern conception of the tiger. That is to say, most of the sources that we looked at when we when we did that episode talked about female tigers. And in fact, there was some speculation that there were no male tigers. Um, but but that these, you know, the the most of the Western folklore concerned the sort of fierce maternal instincts of the tiger. So literal tiger mothers. And I wondered if that's also a theme in in Mughal or or Indian folklore. I'm not precisely sure. In in the in the descriptions of tiger hunting in the Mughal records that I've been able to see, the the sources and in the paintings that I've seen, it's been very much male tigers who are being shot. At the same time, there's there's a Mughal miniature of a female tiger with her cubs threatening I think it's Akbar one of the Mughal rulers and it's just it's a drawing it's a beautiful painting and it shows there that's one of the few places where you have the cubs and the female represented so from a from a danger and within the Mughal context I can't be sure to be honest whether there's a a sense that the female or the male is more dangerous there tends to be a, a recognition that a female protecting their young is going to be more dangerous than a than a, a male tiger alone, but that that's unclear. And when they're described in the sources, they tend to talk about he in in terms of the tiger being attacked. Now, this I'm not sure where this comes from. It may be partly because there is a a, a strong sense of protection of the female in Mughal practice and tradition. You know, women are kept in the harem. But they're they're there to protect. They're, they're there to be protected, and the honor of the emperor is about protecting those women. So I don't know if there's something to do with a, a wider sense of masculinity there. Um, but also the the Bengal context is is sort of quite distinctive in the sense that the female is linked to traditions of deities and village goddesses but this is partly because of this different mix of traditions influencing that part of, of India and particularly tantrism and shakti traditions and so forth so the mother the mother goddess is a very powerful strong force in in Bengal and and in northeastern India and that I wonder if the tiger's part of that wider conversation but it's not simple I think that's the thing with India there's never I say to the students basically for everything everything you say there'll be an equal and opposite and equally true thing to say in in most contexts so I wonder whether there were any tigers kept in menageries at the time because 
when we think about animals used for sort of display and power or the the, the kind of uh, political display of animals, you often associate that with royal menageries in the West. And were tigers being, they they tigers, as far as we know, were not regularly being kept in menageries until fairly late um, in uh, in the Western world. But what about India? Again, it's a very interesting question. In the in the Mughal context, there doesn't seem to be a tendency to capture and keep animals in captivity. And I'm there's a there's a range of reasons that would be linked to this. Pa- partly because because of cost and understanding of of what enables an animal to thrive. Elephants, for example, are not are not bred in captivity throughout India's long history. Until Akbar, Akbar does a little bit of breeding of elephants in captivity, but captivity doesn't mean in a in a stall. It means within a, a, a confined or managed area. In the case of tigers, there might be cases where they are kept, but I can't see it in in the records that I've read. I can't see it. Lions. Lions would be kept, and there's an interesting uh, Jahangir um, has lions um, that are there partly partly as a deterrent and a threat. Um, Jahangir's history is often ignored because there's more status or more emphasis given to Akbar and, and, and Aurangzeb, but Jahangir, he kept lions um and sometimes he had them close by him so that if somebody displeased him, there was the threat that they could be thrown to the lions to be eaten. So there was a, a, a function for a lion in that context that the tiger doesn't seem to have. The other large cat that was kept were, were cheetahs. Cheetahs were captured and trained to help with hunting. And one of the things that Akbar does, the young emperor does, um, is is capture his sort of one of his early successes from his point of view is to capture a cheetah which would then be tamed and you can see in there are mogul paintings of the cheetahs coming to help with the hunt and being brought on little carts and they've got a blindfold on and a, and a protective jerkin sort of over their chests so they're not injured and then they go and assist in hunting particularly gazelles and, and deer and so forth so there's a the relationship with Big cats varies according to the way they're understood, but the the broader the broader side of this is that the concept of captivity and stability was different in the Mughal period. Kings were largely mobile. The building of large palaces and structures was was much more a, a gradual development and the kings and emperors typically moved a lot with tents and they were central asian nomadic in their earlier traditions so to have sort of a large permanent zoo was not really part of the the mindset it wasn't so much an urban um urban landscape that they were thinking about in terms of the way animals were kept but they were kept in areas called shikabaks, and and these these were areas that were designated for hunting, and they were areas of land, usually a sort of relatively open, managed, open, mixed forest type areas where animals were encouraged to come and live, and were accessible for hunting. And tigers weren't that kind of animal. Tigers were animals that lived in the jungles, so they were in a different 
sort of section of the landscape from a Mughal point of view. So they were part of a kind of landscape that was difficult to access. So in that sense, they weren't captured. But they were sometimes hunted through the forests as part of wider strategies of quelling dissent or, or, or clearing uh, clearing other dangerous people out of the forest. So there was this, an association of, of forest with danger and difficulty in, in controlling both humans and animals. You mentioned the earlier traditions that the Mughals drew upon, you know, from the time they came into power in the, what, 16th century up, up through the 19th century. I'm thinking of all of the images of big cat hunting that are associated with rulers going back to the Bronze Age, you know, in Persia um, and in Mesopotamia in particular. But the idea that a sort of ability to hunt and control these fierce cats is part of what qualifies one to be a a ruler. So there does seem to be a, a very strong connection between power and control of large cats in India's history and this goes right back you can go back to the Indus Valley civilization there's some extraordinary images from that period which is seen as sort of almost pre the Indian civilization that we we discussing now of a deity or a or a warrior some figure holding two tigers one on each side up by the throat so this 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 image of this incredible power over the tiger is already there thousands of years before the Mughals set foot in India and before the Vedic civilization sort of really develops in 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 India's culture and so forth, which is pre-Mughal, obviously. So there is an association, but it's much it's interestingly the the the, the strict alliance between the right to control or have access to an animal and royalty is a bit more complex in the large cat sort of area. Lions were seen very much as the preserve of the royal of royalty. Um, they were associated with kingship. There were images of lions used to associate kingship. Um, this And this goes back to Ashoka um, and the pre-Mughal period. But you do get cases of others shooting tigers who are not the emperor. It's not just the emperor. It's not just the prince who can kill a tiger. However, there is a sense of proprietary control in the sense that if the emperor wants to shoot those tigers, then the emperor can control it. But it's not such a requirement. And and this is partly, I think, because of where the tigers live. If they live deep in the forests, um, often it's the local forest population that is managing the danger and threat on a more routine basis. So there's a difference. And and this tension, there's always a tension between the forest dweller and, and the external power, the external state. Most of the Indian empires and kings and that have an ambivalent relationship with, with dense forest and the people who live in them. And they are they are seen as more widely places of danger and threat and uncertainty, but also places that often include areas of deep sacred power. And this is, I think, where the tiger is so distinctive. And I mentioned the link with asceticism. And this is partly 
you get partly to do with this connection. It's not just about royal power in the Indian context or state power. It's about religious power and status. So you you have in the um, there's some extraordinary paintings and even if you go into the much later British period there are some photographs I think of 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 ascetics holy men um, and holy women sitting on the skin of a tiger so they've they've been able to control and dominate the tiger and they're able to sit on that tiger and control it and there's an association of of asceticism control over the senses control over the passions that, that translates into control over the tiger, which is not just a royal or just not just a princely concept. So it's more complex. And there are some more very interesting um, paintings, particularly from the Bengal region of, of the female, again, the female, the female yogini, the, the person who is studying to be a yogi, sitting with her, her master or her, or her mistress and that these over time you get a change so you get a painting of a tiger sitting with the yoga with the with the the guru the the master or the mistress the guru who's trans, who's teaching these uh sacred and ascetic traditions so there's an association with sacredness an association with that sort of power and there are stories that are that the the, the tiger eats the young yogini eats the one who wants to be the follower of the guru and then themselves sit by the guru and become linked to the guru. And, and you get resonances of this in, in Mughal art. You, there are images of Akbar as the peaceful ruler. It's a very strong motif in Mughal art, um, the peaceful ruler who sits in the garden with all the animals around him at peace, uh, the lions, the deer, the birds, all calmly around him and these again resonate with that tradition of the yogi um, or the spiritual and religious ascetic and the link between the ascetic and the forest is very deep in in indian tradition or hindu tradition as it's developed you have these tradition of the the going into the forest the renunciate goes into the forest as the final stage of gaining absolute complete a connection with with the other and with the divine so that forest has all kinds of associations sacred power um, places of danger places of threat but also places of enormous spiritual power and energy and this is where the female is so important because the 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 Durga the goddess particularly the west the the west Bengal modern uh in, in modern India but the the, the eastern sections of India, sort of mainly around the Bengal region, there's a very strong connection between the power and strength of the goddess, the energy of the goddess, and the fear of the goddess. So you're always placating the goddess, but she also has more power than a male god might have. So there's this, this sort of juxtaposition. And the tiger connects with that as well. So much fascinating sets of images and the lore here that is is quite different um, and really so deeply enmeshed culturally in ways that uh, are just not true when you a society where there, there are no tigers to be seen and it's all by reputation i i had this question about shira khan because that was a terrifying figure from my childhood you know watching the disney movie 
the Jungle Book. Um, and, you know, later I encountered the literary version. We actually had a dog named Roger Kipling. So that was one of my father's authors. Um, to me, in some ways, Shere Khan is the ultimate colonialist version of a Bengal tiger. I mean, he's this all these racist ideas about the sort of sly natives, right? And the, the lying and the double dealing, but also, you know, this ableist thing because he's crippled, right? And I'm just wondering what the relationship of that figure that came out of the fevered colonialist imagination of Rudyard Kipling and Walt Disney, you know, what what's the relationship of that tiger to the folklore tigers or the, the fantastic tigers of the Mughal tradition? I had a couple of things to say about about that. One one is that there is a radical difference, which is I think the, the point about the creation of Kipling's tiger. There is a radical difference between the way the British understand tigers and their relationship with tigers and the way they're understood in the Mughal context and in the wider context of Indian history. And I think there are two things that are connected to this. One is in the British context, it's part of a hyper-masculine conversation about dominance and control and power. And it's very much a masculine conversation. In the Indian context, the dominance and the power of the tiger is, is linked to much deeper and more complex ideas of danger to do with female danger, the power of the jungle, the power of the unknown. And the moguls connect with it, but they don't need it as a way of expressing their power and their, their dominance as emperors. What they connect with really is the elephant. That becomes much more their way of demonstrating power because there's a clear Indian tradition that links the emperor with the, the riding and management and control of elephants. And the, the moguls don't have the same fairly rigid, almost aggressive colonial masculinity approach that you get with British colonialisms. From 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 a, a, a mogul perspective, sexuality and gender is we would say more fluid. There's not there's not the anxiety around masculinity the same way. Um, and that really comes through in the way they engage with animal life in in India. The other thing is the role of the hunt. In the British tradition in the British colonial context, if they want to go and subdue an area that's that's causing some problems or they want to deal with tension in an area, they have an army, they use the army. In the Mughal context, they go hunting. So the hunt is this huge, complicated way of bringing an enormous number of troops into a region which may or may not need settling. And, and it was a way of controlling the landscape and the wider populations of the landscape. So they didn't need to hunt a tiger. They could hunt anything, gazelle, boar, anything. But the hunt itself had a different function. And you do have, you do have moguls going out and hunting. Akbar used to go and just liked hunting, and they did like hunting. Um, and it was certainly, you know, they enjoyed it and so forth. But it had the going on the hunt and the, the creation of these specific gardens where animals were cultivated almost as a, as a place where there would always be plenty of game if people wanted to hunt. This was different from the sort of more, more individualized um, 
sense of a kind of hyper-masculinity that you get in the in the British hunt context. And it's not that there weren't the, – the British used a lot of the traditions. They used beaters, they used ways of surrounding animals and so on, which were traditions that came from um, previous Indian cultural practices. But this idea of being being a man, that you had to kill something to be a man, is, is much, much more complex in the Mughal context and it and women you know Noor Jahan Jahangir talks about how proud he was that she was able to shoot a tiger with with only one or two shots so hopefully that that helps but you don't have that you have a different gender there's a different relationship between gender and power in the mogul context when you can from the the British colonial context and animals are part of that we really appreciate you being willing to talk to us today and uh, we enjoyed having this conversation. Our second guest today is Samayita Banerjee, who is a PhD candidate at Ashoka University in New Delhi. Uh, she wrote her master's thesis on a 17th century Bengali text called the Raya Mangal, in which tigers play a very big role, as you already have heard from the little snippet that we got. Uh, so welcome, Samayita. We're so excited to have you with us. Thank you yes, so much. Welcome. So the Raya Mangal is one of the Mangal Kavyas. Can you tell us a little about these and how the Raya Mangal fits in or doesn't fit into this body of literature? Yes. Um, you know, the Mangal Kavyas, they are an important phase of pre-modern literary works of Bengal, but they weren't considered important uh, uh, liter- you know, in terms of their literariness. So chronologically, they were composed between the 15th and the 18th centuries, at least the, the important ones. Um, some of the really important ones uh, that I have looked at, at least, are the Chandi Mangala, which is the worship of the goddess Chandi, who is, uh, uh, in her modern avatar, a, a version of Durga. And then there's Manasa Mangala. Manasa is a, is a serpent goddess and uh, who, is, who is worshipped as the daughter of Shiva. So the Raya Mangala is, uh, is, is one of uh, those many, many Mangal Kavya texts. Now, um, you know, the Mangal Kavyas are, um, they, um, they are essentially composition written in verse forms and are stories of cultic deities and uh, their emergence and how they are worshipped. And uh, etymologically, it's very interesting because, I mean, Mangal means benediction or welfare and Kavya is uh, however, however way you want to translate it essentially uh, a work of poetry and uh, the like the puranas uh, the compositions are uh, were understood often in terms of the brahmanical need to connect with the region's uh, very very local population and uh, eventually over time they came to be slowly brahmanized so um, chandi who was a forest deity she was uh, made uh, shiva's wife and manasa as i said was uh, Shiva's daughter. And, and Raya uh, Mangal is the story of Dakshin Raya, who, this tiger god, who was then uh, worshipped as a, a, as a son of Shiva. And yeah, this is, I think, the, the very short introduction. The, the other very interesting part I just want to uh, mention here is that these were performative. They were performed. And um, they, are, um, they are of the Panchali genre. And uh, Panchali actually means uh, puppets. 
So even now, if you go into the, the regions, you would see these uh, Mangal Kavyas and portions of them uh, performed for the people. You say puppets. What kind of puppets? Shadow puppets? Glove puppets? Doll-sized puppets? Doll? Yes, like doll-sized puppets, you know, and uh, with, with strings oh, attached nice. to them. Sometimes uh, people dress up uh, as tigers or as, uh, it's very difficult to dress up as a, as a, as a serpent goddess. But, uh, but essentially, these, uh, the goddesses were not um, uh, depicted uh, you know, in, in, a, in an animal form. So they were humans. They just had certain powers over these animals. But, but I think we'll come to that later, like how the representation of Dakshin Raya from a man who controls tigers became that of uh, a man with the head of a tiger and then sometimes a tiger himself. So, yeah. And <laughs> just uh, the Raimangal was not... Yes, a very slippery slope, yes. The Raimangal wasn't considered um, actually to be of very high literary value even within the other Mangal Kavis. Because of a very interesting mixture of languages used, like very crass words, like it was very difficult for me to translate this, you know, uh, words such as testicles and other several other words that when you read the text in uh, in Bengali in in vernacular, it's it's quite it, it it kind of it's quite shocking to see that in a in a seventeenth century text. You don't expect that in a in a text like that, at least in that time. But but there it is. Is that the reason why it was perhaps viewed as less, as having less value because of it? it's sort of a, a kind of lowbrow, you know, language and sexual imagery when it is in fact as literary and artistic from our perspective as any of the others? Absolutely. You, you are absolutely on point. It was considered crude in terms of, uh, you know, what goes into a, a, lit, a, a good work of literature. Because other Mangal Kavyas, for example, the Chandi Mangala, is considered one of the higher uh, of one of the higher standards. It's not that the language is very sophisticated, but the poet was uh, very uh, aware of the words that he was using. He, he would refrain uh, from using extremely crude words, or even even in the in the depiction of conflicts between uh, two characters, there would be some level of sophistication, if I may say so. Yes. And these are uh, regional. I mean, there there are uh, texts from a particular region in Bengal, right? You see, uh, the Manasa Mangal, for example, uh, has uh, can be found uh, compositions of, of uh, different authors of the si- uh, similar text can be found in in several parts of Bengal, even in North Bengal. Even the Rai Mangal itself, the one that I refer to, is is believed to be the oldest one. It was composed in uh, sixteen eighty four. Uh, and then there are other versions of it uh, written, uh, you know, a few years later or maybe some decades later. Uh, one of the difficulties is that finding the manuscript. This one was uh, found in completion. So it's also very easy to follow the, the entire narrative. I have a question about Dakshin Raya. I mean, I'd like to know a little bit more about this character and sort of how he comes into being and... You know, he's represented maybe as a tiger hunter or a protector of tigers. But as you said, he kind of slips into tigerdom himself. Maybe yeah. you could tell us a little bit more about, about him. Yes. The, the character of Dakshin Raya takes us back to a much more compact space of the very forested area of, uh, of the Sundarbans, of the Bengal Delta. You don't see this character in other parts of Bengal. So... Uh, 
this is a very uh, mangrove forest hero if i may if i may say so and uh, in the in the ramayangal he is he is depicted as a warrior demigod he's not a tiger himself he's he's this uh, you know guy with this a uh, 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 a warrior with bows and arrows and has an army of tigers that is that is what makes him the overlord of not just the tigers but also the people so he's a, he's a protector god of sorts and uh, the you know it later on um dakshinraya takes a more uh, villainous role when uh, we have characters such as uh, bono bibi and uh, i mean mostly bono bibi and her followers uh, he he uh, he becomes a bad guy essentially um because we now have the the character of a of a very protective mother uh in 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 the in the persona of bono bibi but before that before the emergence of bono bibi dakshin rai dakshin rai was this uh, this overlord and uh, the most interesting thing is that that he is the son of shiva uh, that was just the brahmanical way of bringing a very local regional uh, deity into the a larger fold of the brahmanical realm but what i what what fascinates me is that if you go beyond the region the immediate vicinity of the forest in the in the in the regions that is outside uh, a little outside sundarbans like the districts of the north and 24 parganas but still within the active delta belt but but less forested he is actually worshiped as ganesha so his uh, the roles in changes he is no longer he does not he no longer needs to be a protector god he can just be a benevolent because the idea of ganesha is that of a very a very chilled out uh, sweet god right Uh, so the transformation happens in within the character of Dakshinraya himself. Yes, it's also fascinating because, as you mentioned, he becomes kind of a bad guy when this mother goddess emerges, Bombibi. I just wonder about sort of tigers and gender. We've talked a little bit about that previously on our podcast when we looked at the sort of European, medieval, and early modern fascination with tigers. It was always female tigers. and their cubs that were of interest so i'm sort of curious what is the sort of gender gradient with tiger tiger deities or or demigods um you know within the texts itself there are uh, the representation of tigers are masculine from the piece that i just re- read out in the, in the beginning all these tigers who've gone to complain to dakshinraya are male so there are almost no female tigers even in the later uh, story of bonobibi she is of course a woman and uh, she fights with narayani who uh, is the mother of dakshinraya and and interestingly narayani is also another name for parvati or shiva's wife or durga and uh, we see that connection there as well uh, she defeats bonobibi defeats narayani and becomes the overlord now and and even dakshinraya has to owe his allegiance to bonobibi but tigers are almost always male within these narratives at least yes so the the sundarbans are i think the largest mangrove forest in the world to this day and it seems as though they have a kind of his, this deep historical connection with tigers which is still mm-hmm. true i mean there's there's still kind of attention to tigers in the sundarbans Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about what a mangrove forest is like and 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 why that forest might be particularly tigerish? 
you know, it actually sh- is not very conducive to tigers. In fact, uh, just a few days back, this, um, I was attending a talk by um, a very famous uh, conservationist, and he specifically used the word lousy while describing the Sundarbans as a habitat for tigers. And even even uh, within the general discussion on tigers, uh, it is said that, and it is true, that the Sundarban tigers are much smaller in size as compared to the tigers you find in central India or, or the southern parts of India because they have to adapt to the very, um, very fluid, uh, soft ground uh, of of the of the Sundarbans of the mangrove forest, uh, they have to be smaller and they have to be lighter on their feet essentially. So that's that's one of the things. And Bengal have uh, always had a good population of of tigers. I mean, before they were completely killed down, you know, eventually in the colonial period. So you see the in uh, several historical accounts, and one of my most uh, favorite ones is actually a land grant. It, this is a this is a seventh century land grant by this king, a, a semi feudatory ruler, Lokanatha, who gave out a, a copper plate land grant charter to this uh, group of Brahmins, and there's this Sanskrit f- phrase that says that you know a landscape that has no demarcation between natural and artificial boundaries, and there the word Mriga Mahisa Varaha Vyagra Sarisripa. Uh, we see the word Vyagraha there. Vyagraha is the Sanskrit word for uh, for tigers. This is a 7th century land grant. And then later on, you find uh, the stories of Bernier, who traveled sometime in the 1600s. He, he was very aware of the tiger problem, even though he was completely fascinated by the beauty of the Sundarbans. But he was like, you know, I'm going to uh, get down from the boat in an area that will not have tiger attacks. I mean, I'm going to be safe at night. And then you have the accounts of James Rennell, who was the first Soviet general, and he did such a brilliant work of mapping the, the Ganga, Bambaputta, Meghna Delta part. And he also mentions tigers. So, And then, of course, you have the work of uh, William Hunter, who in seven, 1875 completely dismissed the idea that civilization could be possible in a landscape because tigers was one of the problems, major problems. So historically, we see a pattern of tigers inhabiting the landscape. So if, if it's a lousy place for tigers and they're all scrawny, does that mean they're also irritated? And, and per, perhaps that's why <laughs> there's these inter- particular interactions. Yeah, I'm so angry glad you tigers. asked that. Uh, very, and not just angry. Uh, uh, the anthropologist Anuja Lais, she uses the word cantankerous. And she says that uh, the tigers actually share a very similar mood with the, the inhabitants because um, it's that it's navigating a very fluid landscape. People are irritated. Of course, tigers are, are irritated as well. And there are like several problems, several problems that the tigers uh, generally face. Like mm, uh, the, this, this person that it's one of my favorite books, The Royal Tiger of Bengal. This was written by uh, Sir Joseph uh, Ferrer, who uh, came out with this book, I think, in sometime in 18, uh, 1875. He said that the, the Sundarban tigers have a natural propensity towards attacking humans. They were natural man-eaters because of several issues. One thing is that, you know, they're, first of all, navigating a very difficult landscape. Uh, salt water makes them very uh, irritated. 
and the they kill humans because they want something sweet and human blood is sweet that's one second thing is that they have no idea about where their territories are because the salt water washes away their urine uh, markings which tigers in uh, other parts of the subcontinents a problem that they they don't have to face so apart from a general fluid uh, uneasy landscape they're also dealing with these shifts shifts that the people are also dealing with so yes they have a, a similar they're irritated basically that's <laughs> and that that leads to their ferocity they're angry they're annoyed they just you know they just want to eat you because you're sweet that's the logic so you're saying that that's a that's a sort of explanation that goes back over a hundred years but I think I saw that recently in an article that Ian sent me about, um, you know, tiger attacks on humans in this region. Um, and then there was another explanation advanced, which was that they get used to eating human flesh because when there are these cyclones and, and bodies are washing up in the mangrove swamps, you know, they, that's just, they scavenge that meat like they would any other, that, that was a particularly gruesome image. And one that, um, as climate change increases the frequency and severity of these cyclone events, it's kind of terrifying and upsetting. (laughs) Also the fact that the way, uh, you know, the idea of a man eating tiger is, is explained to us. I mean, you know, the works of uh, people like Jim Corbett or Kenneth Anderson would, would tell you that tigers are not natural man eaters. They would, they would get older. It would be odd. They would be injured. And it's only then because people are easy to hunt. Uh, only then they would go and uh, attack a, a person. But uh, what the question that troubles me is that in a landscape where there are no proper boundaries of not just which land is going to be here today, uh, land that is going to be here today may not be there tomorrow. Cyclones, floods, and also the, the landscape is constantly shifting. The, bear, the, the, the plate, the Bengal Delta itself, the rivers are shifting and tilting eastwards. Uh, it's a very fluid landscape. And um, the islands are arranged as such that one island is, is, uh, has more, you know, is occupied by humans. And the next island is, is a part of a tiger reserve. Tigers don't understand boundaries the way we do so the question is that perhaps uh, it is natural to them because they're seeing people as often as they're seeing uh, any other animals that they would go and hunt so what makes a natural man eater uh, is 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 the question that that i i find very intriguing we don't really have an answer to that but so far like in the literature i have read but it does make me very curious to know yes it seems as though the the Raya Mangal itself has its own answers as to why as to what's happening, why and how. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that passage that you read as a way into the the, the text itself. I particularly like that passage because you know uh, it's because of the connection to forest essentially, and more 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 than the tigers. Of course, they are the the main characters here, but. The way we understand forest and the way the forest is otherwise represented in, in the Mangal Kavyas is that it, it is essentially a, a domain for men. It's a place for honey collectors. It's a place for woodcutters. But in the Raya Mangal, um, it, again, it just connects to the, the actual very living conditions of the present-day Sundarbans. How do you separate the domestic from the economic sphere? If, you, if your home is in the forest, 
then you are it's no longer just a, a place you go to uh, you know to collect wood or or get honey or to even hunt for that matter you are living there and it's this women characters who are from the passage itself they are going about doing their own business one of them is delivering uh, you know on on almost in in labor going to deliver a baby the other one uh, in a group of people a group of women going to the market they're carrying on their daily uh, their daily chores the domestic is it, you cannot separate it anymore from the other the economic or i don't know the exotic if if that's the way the forest is represented uh, so th- that's why the i think that the question of gender and how we look at it at least in this particular text it becomes uh, there's a, there's a subversion you can no longer uh, call the forest a masculine place it is a place for everyone and and uh, women are as much a part of it even even in their economic activities uh so like in the present day sundarbans uh prawn seed cultivation is is one of the one of the occupations that um is largely done by women i mean of course because now uh women are going out and engaging with the forest more but even in this 17th century text when you see the depiction it's it's no longer they are no longer separate they are part of the forest and they're interacting with the tigers they are giving them a very hard time and i think there's there's something there you know there's this idea of uh, a very liminal the forest becomes a very liminal space where a lot of things that that are um kind of concrete in our heads as to how a man relates to a forest and a, fo- a woman relates to a forest gets changed it just becomes very uh, almost as fluid and muddy as the landscape itself and tigers what role do they play in that interchange and slipperiness uh from the perspective of the text they seem quite bothered because these are also they are warriors they are uh, they are the the vassals they are the warriors who are serving dakshin raya and they're serving uh, the gazi peer um so these are powerful tigers and uh, the only time there's any depiction of their pain and in, in the in the bangla text it's 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 beautifully depicted they are basically come it's it's like going to your teacher and complaining that this person beat me up and you have a list of tigers doing that that so you see a, a kind of vulnerability that you don't find in in any other kind any of the other texts of at least of the genre it's um, it's fascinating yes they're troubled I think it's interesting too at least in the in the passage you read us these tigers are complaining because they've been beaten up not just by anyone but by women and the women have kind of gotten them where it counts for their masculinity you know the testicles and the mustache I love that she burns his mustache off and that threatens his maleness somehow almost yeah, the man who the is complaint and 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 that is what yeah. is also fascinating right the association of attacks is always with the with the predator the the tigers but here we see a a kind of a, a change in that they are the one who are attacked and yes they're uh, mm-hmm. well bullied essentially you know uh, that's that's what is is extremely uh, in the in the text is you'd actually feel pity for them they don't they can't wage a war against these these uh these women because it's just so everyday 
and and uh, there's no there's no strategy there's no uh, there's no quest there's no opposition as such you know it's not like uh, dakshin raya's tigers are going and and fighting against uh, ghazi peer's tigers that is happening in a separate separate section that's happening proper ba- battle and you know exchange of really really harsh words but in this in this passage itself it's it's just a very uh, like how do we deal with this it's that that question that the tigers ask like what do we do with this problem we can deal with larger problems but how do we deal with this that i find that extremely i mean it, it was very cute while i read it in bangla does dakshin rai ever tell them how to deal with women or provide them any advice <laughs> No no I think he's focused on like large problems as to how to maintain his uh, overlordship because uh, that is what ends up like so over a third of the text is about this uh, this fight um, with the muslim peer and of course eventually dakshin raya emerges as uh, the the supreme overlord not because he won the battle but because shiva came down and said that you guys shouldn't fight Mm, Dakshin Rai is going to be the overlord but uh, you got you be friends you're going to have your territories you're going to have your army people are going to respect you but uh, this is how it's going to be but that is also because the Raimangal was made to eventually conform to a larger brahmanical ideology which changes later in the in the bone baby narrative yes of course in the in the 19th century yeah. so i suppose it's you know it's impossible to know how the text might have been received or uh, performed like at the time but if it's still being performed in say puppet theaters when people choose which episodes to perform or what things to concentrate on do the episodes that you are interested in uh, get played up for their kind of comic inversions and and kind of you know satirical commentary or do this or do the performances all stick to the sort of straight the more straight narratives No uh the the performance essentially focuses on how bone bibi uh, so the 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 rai mongol is is not enacted it's the bone bibi johuranama ah, okay because even now uh bone bibi is the the symbiotic mother of both the people and the tigers and the performance always focuses on bone bibi's uh, triumph over dakshin raya and uh, So yes episodes the the comic parts are always how he was heckled and uh, also because at this point he is representative of the tigers and the laws around the place um, have created this this uh, climate of conflict as to the for the people it's like the state the and and the the government and the city people they care for the tigers more than the people they don't really care about us so uh, that that um, discontent towards tigers uh, are reflected is is reflected in in the performance because uh, previously it was believed that the tigers and the people share and coexist but now because of all of the environmental protection acts and sundarbans becoming a tiger reserve a, a, a protected zone people are unhappy and they believe that the the tiger is getting all the more uh, you know the, the cosmopolitan tiger now because the tourism industry and um, the general idea of the sundarbans is like is no longer uh, involving people it's all about tigers now and that creates uh, an issue for the people because uh, 
in other parts of the subcontinent, other tiger reserves like the Banthavga Tiger Reserve or, or Kanha or Ranthambore, uh, the idea of national park is very different. People don't live in national parks. Villages are outside the borders of national parks. So within the national park, it's, it's, the tigers are commodified and sold uh, and of course protected because it's their place now. In the Sundamans, it's very difficult to um, kind of execute that very, uh, you know, in, in, within precise borders because people are still living there and uh, they feel left out. And, 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 and as uh, Dr. San mentioned, the cyclones, the other environmental has, hazards, it, it is, a, it is a, a huge source of problem for uh, the people. And they feel that they, that is not addressed enough by the state uh, and, the, and the country. Yes, I mean, in a way, the whole concept of a national park and the way in which the, the models which exist for national park systems were based on a set of assumptions about the American West, really, you know, with Yellowstone being the first national park, I think anywhere, you know, there was this idea that it was untrammeled, unpopulated by human beings, which of course was not even true of Yellowstone. It's it's not the reality on the ground, but, but yeah, I can see where, particularly in a region with such fluid boundaries, it would be difficult to separate the human sphere from the whatever you want to call it, the wild sphere, the, the tiger's range. Even the tigers don't know what their territory is. Exactly. Yes. Right. As, um, as you point out. In the, in the, uh, the Bandavga Tiger Reserve, I, I had the opportunity to you know, work there uh, last year as part of a project where we were mapping archaeological remains. And uh, so naturally, the, we were learning about tigers there as well. When the park was turned into a, a national park, the place was turned into a national park in the 1960s, villages within the area were removed. People were relocated. That's a general idea that con- uh, conservationists would pitch because in other parts, you can do that. You can find space where people can be successfully rehabilitated. But in the Sundarbans, this this particular um, issue is is actually quite difficult because this was tried and tested in in the nineteen in nineteen seventy nine in the nineteen seventies. There was this huge massacre, the the Morinchapi massacre, where um, thousands of people were killed because they were coming back, mostly East uh, Bangladeshi um, East Bengali migrants who were. Um, told to go to the forests of Dandakaranya and Chhattisgarh and, and uh, Boris, I think. And uh, they eventually started coming back to their land, which was the, the islands of the Sundarbans. And when they, that happened, they were violently sub- subjugated and so many people were killed. And it's, it's, a, it's a stain on the history of, of the, the state policies and the history of the landscape. So the question of rehabilitation also becomes a very, very... Um, difficult concept when you think of this particular uh, forest region. This has been so fascinating. Indeed. I, I feel like I, I want to find, uh, you know, a, a an English translation of the entire work, but I'm going to guess that you're going to tell us that that does not exist. Uh, actually, some does. parts does. Um, Tony Stewart, he came up with the, came out with this book called uh, Witness to Marvels where uh, he looked at several Mangal Kavyas and the Bone Bibi story uh, and, and the Raya Mangal in parts. So you'll find parts of it translated there. 
and uh, he actually is much more liberal in translating mm, words that i did not dare to use in <laughs> during my work because you know uh, but uh, yes so this book might be a good start to to at least find translations of it all right great we'll we'll we will put a link up to that Fantastic. on our our website yeah yeah thank you so much yeah. for being willing and to talk to us it's interesting that so. word marvels <laughs> yes it is yes thank you so much Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a, you know, I love tigers. I love talking about it. I often get distracted because uh, they are not my main focus. I work on archaeology, but the, the, both the places that I have done fieldwork in is so intrinsically linked to tigers, the Sundarbans and Bandhavgarh. So yeah. I get, I, I forget that I do not work on tigers. But, and this was such a, <laughs> for me to just, just go on and on about tigers. So thank you. Yes, it was a pleasure. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. Mm-hmm.